This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. From my home in South Minneapolis, we've got a special lightning round episode of the podcast today, tackling three questions that listeners recorded on their smartphones. We'll be delving into local history, geography, and traditions. This episode ran a bit over our normal 15 minutes, but it is so packed with interesting info that I don't think you will be disappointed. Okay, there's no time to waste. Let's get started with our first question from Graham Coppin. I'm spending a lot of time on my bike because it's the one way I can exercise during the coronavirus pandemic shutdown. And I've noticed that there's no First Avenue South in downtown Minneapolis. There's a First Avenue North, Second Avenue North, Third Avenue North, etc. And then on the other side, there's a Second Avenue South, Third Avenue South, etc. And in between, of course, we've got Hennepin, Nicollet, and Marquette. But then there's no First Avenue South, and I cannot fathom why. And I thought maybe you folks know the answer. I have also wondered this when biking into downtown on First Avenue, which ends near the Minneapolis Convention Center and becomes Marquette Avenue, but I never thought to research the answer. Well, to get to the bottom of this, I called up one of my go-to sources for local history questions, Ted Hathaway at Hennepin County Library. Ted manages the library's special collections department. So, Ted, what do we know about the history of how First Avenue became Marquette Avenue? Well, it's first interesting to know the names have changed a lot over the years. If you go back to the 1850s when the city was originally founded, the numbered avenue streets all had names and they weren't avenues, they were streets. So actually Marquette was originally Minnetonka Street. Hmm. And it was that until basically uh, following the merger with St. Anthony in 1872, the city went through a large-scale process of name changes. And at that point, the named streets became numbered avenues. So that's when First Avenue was born, was about 1873. Okay. And then... They continue to rename streets periodically, so you can look to other examples well into the 20th century. For example, in the, 18, or the 1930s and 40s, 6th, 7th, and 8th Avenues, just to go down a little bit, became Portland, Park, and Chicago. And those actually continued on into South Minneapolis. But in 1913, there was a push to rename First Avenue Marquette. And I think in those days, they were recognizing that there were some principal avenues downtown and that there was a lot of symbolism attached to them. So we had the Theater Entertainment District on Hennepin Avenue. We had the big shopping Market Street, which would be Nicollet. And the city, which had grown a lot in population by that point, was starting to develop a pretty large financial district. And it was felt that the name Marquette in line with early French explorers, Nicolet and Father Hennepin, it might be better to have a a more distinctive name like Marquette rather than something more prosaic like First Avenue. And that was after Father Jacques Marquette, who I don't think really came to Minnesota, but he was a Mississippi River explorer. Right. And certainly Father Hennepin's visit was brief as well. But um, 
at the time, curiously enough, most of the opposition came from owners south of Grant Street. And the name change did go through the city council. It passed 16 to 9. The council was a lot bigger in those days. But you'll note that it was spared south of Grant Street. So First Avenue became Marquette, but only as far as Grant. And after that, it becomes First Avenue again, right. uh, all the way down to the city line. So it seems like to summarize why this occurred, you sent me a story from 1913 where they were sort of outlining some of the reasons. And, and the city was expanding rapidly. They had these two two core avenues, but there was so much commerce happening downtown, they felt like they needed another sort of principal street. And one of the quotes in that story said, it may be that the Wall Street of Minneapolis will be the future Marquette Avenue. So really, as you said, looking for some symbolism of this sort of next grand street of downtown. Yeah, Minneapolis boosterism was at high tide. I think another one of those articles talks about, you know, Minneapolis will grow indefinitely and you can look at population projections of over a million population in those days. And indeed, the rate of increase would suggest that happened. Of course, it slowed down a lot during the Depression and the war eras and then went into a decline after that. Well, so that's pretty interesting. And then did that concept of a financial district take hold? I mean, we don't quite associate it as prominently as Hennepin and Nicollet. No, but I think it is still considered the financial district down there. I mean, certainly you did have the big banks in that vicinity and, you know, that part of town. Although I would say it's more of a general office district. You know, there's not as much retail in that area. So I think that identity has been legitimate even 100 years later and more. But obviously, you know, the ambitions of the boosters were not quite realized as the century went on. Right. But I would say it's still the third principal avenue. I think that's pretty much undeniable. Well, great. Well, Ted, thank you so much for coming on and explaining some of this for us. I feel like we got a lot of great info here. Good, good. Okay, next up, we're delving into the summertime history of the East Metro with a question from Becky Ortel. I live sort of near White Bear Lake, and I know that some of the gorgeous mansions on the lake were at one time summer homes. And so I'd be interested to know how this started, what it used to be like back when the lake was only 15 miles away and folks had to take a train or horses to get there and maybe you know how it's evolved over time that would be very interesting thank you who better to answer this one than sarah hansen executive director of the white bear lake historical society Okay, so Sarah, when we talk about the historical summer cottages of the Twin Cities, often, you know, you hear stories about Lake Minnetonka, but I think what we're going to talk about here is there was a parallel thing happening on the East Metro, right? Absolutely. So essentially, White Bear was to St. Paul what Minnetonka was to Minneapolis. It just sort of developed that the Pillsbury's and those industries that were in Minneapolis had families and, and staff and whatever who would end up having cottages and lake homes out on the West Metro, which makes sense. And then the same thing was happening. So the James J. Hills and the the industry folks in particular out of St. Paul would come to White Bear and stay around the lake. And James J. Hill, I think, even had a huge farm out there. Absolutely. All of what is today the city of North Oaks, or most of what is today the city of North Oaks, actually stems from what was the Hill family farm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So when did that really start to get going? and, And what was sort of the primary driver of this cabin culture of White Bear Lake? 
So the railroad came through in September of 1868, and it was no coincidence that when the railroad connected the capital city of St. Paul to Duluth eventually in 1870 and 71 through what was known as White Bear at the time, that created this sort of streamline of ease and access to get to the lake in the area. Hard to believe just being 12 miles or so from downtown St. Paul that we were considered up north, way up north at that time, but we were. And prior to the railroad coming through, it really was a three-hour bumpy, dusty, dirty, noisy wagon ride, typically, for folks. And so people would come, but it was sort of an adventure. It was a big deal. It was a commitment to get out here. And you certainly didn't come for the day or for a few days. You made a commitment and came. So by 1868, when the railroad came through and, and opened that up, it really created a sort of domino effect of people and, and other industries opening kind of behind that. So essentially, by the early 1870s, there were a lot of stores and hotels and saloons and things that catered to the resort industry or to the hospitality industry that developed around the lake. And it just sort of continued to snowball, if you will, and uh, people kept responding. And so was it fairly seasonal then? Very much, yep. Uh, just like resort communities up north, what we think of as up north today, the population would typically start to burst in usually May. Uh, May 1st was often the opening time, if you will. And then usually October 1st was kind of the end, but um, sometimes September 1st, depending on the season and the weather. The people building cabins there, would this be predominantly the industrialists of the St. Paul area then? Yeah, it was kind of a mixture through the years. So there were different layers of things happening all at once, if you will. Along what is today within the city of White Bear Lake, um, along the lake shore, there were big resort hotels. So those would have people come and they would stay for a week or sometimes even for the whole summer season. They, they literally would just check in for the season. And those would accommodate two or 300 people at a time. So there was a huge population that came from that standpoint over the weeks and months of the summer. And then there was another layer that literally there were 10 villages that would spring up around town. There was a big boulevard in town in the downtown area that actually would populate with tents and people would bring their beds and their family portraits and their dining tables and all sorts of things. So when we think of glamping, like mm -hmm. we envision today, uh, they were doing that in the 1880s, 1890s out at the lake, which is kind of entertaining. Right. Um, and then the other aspect of it were those building cottages and cabins. I wouldn't say it was just the highest class industrialists, the highest level of executives or that sort of thing. Because for example, at the White Bear Lake Area Historical Society, we actually own the Filibrown House, which is an 1879 cottage at the lake. And that was built by Charles and Emily Noyes. And Charles was in partnership with his brother. They were actually owned a pharmaceutical company in St. Paul. So it wasn't just lumber barons or railroad magnets or that sort of thing um, coming out. It was business people in general. And so how much of this history is still visible today when you go to White Bear Lake? Sadly, not enough, uh, in my opinion. But uh, you, you can see as you go along Lake Avenue, for example, which was kind of the main location, the, the first that was developed in that way. There are homes that are older. There's sort of a mixture of homes that are older and, and then the newer ones that have filled in as they go. 
again, the Philip Brown House, which is on Lake Avenue, is original to its 1879 appearance. And our question asker, Becky, she specifically referenced, you know, some of the gorgeous mansions around the lake. So would that have been part of this first wave of White Bear Lake coming into its own as a summer destination? Or is this somewhat of a second wave? What I would think of is the bigger mansions came a little bit later. The, the first real wave from the 1860s, 70s were really pretty rustic cabins and cottages and things. As transportation opportunities changed and people became more independent as the automobile came into play and even the streetcar system came out to White Bear in 1906, that made a big difference for folks. And so they could come and go a little bit more. And so people would change the way they approached things. And so they would go up north to Duluth or up north further than just going the 12 or so miles out here. And so the phenomenon of the resort community changed. Ultimately, a lot of those original cottages were then torn down in the 19-teens and 1920s and much larger, fancier homes, which I would think of as more of the mansions and bigger structures were built. There were a few larger ones earlier, pre-1900, certainly designs done by Cass Gilbert and Clarence Johnston, who were both notable during that time period, were built out on Manitou Island and around the Delwood Shore and that sort of thing. But the majority of what we think of as kind of the bigger ones, and especially the ones that still remain, were more 1920s era. Well, great. Well, Sarah, thank you so much. This is a big help. And we learned a lot today about the summer history of the East Metro. So this has been really interesting. My pleasure. Thanks for calling. I'm going to have to pay a visit soon to the Historical Society's Philip Brown House. You can learn more about it at whitebearhistory.org. Next up is a question from Lene Holt about a familiar childhood game. Why is it, if it is indeed true, that Duck, Duck, Gray Duck has been played solely within the metro area, maybe extending as far west as the St. Cloud area? Whereas growing up in Wisconsin and everybody else I talked to that did not grow up in this metro area always played Duck, Duck, Goose. Thanks for all you're doing. It's a fantastic podcast. Our former intern, Austin Mackelis, wrote a great article about this question in April 2019. I will include a link to it in the show notes. We reached him in Washington State, where he is now a reporter at the Kitsap Sun. So, Austin, you looked into this last year for us. Now, let's just start with the premise. Is it true that Minnesota sort of stands alone in playing this game a little differently? Yeah, by every indication, it is true that Minnesota is the only one of our 50 states that does play Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. The rest of the states play Duck, Duck, Goose. And so, and and oddly enough, I think I hear either a duck or a goose in the background. You're in Washington State there outside. But you spoke to Christopher Pollard. He's sort of considered the expert on this topic. What are some of the theories, or at least what's what was his most prominent theory as to why we would be this outlier. One of the theories that Chris looked into was the theory related to our Scandinavian history as Minnesotans. As you know, Minnesota has uh, deep Scandinavian roots, and the theory basically goes that some folks from Sweden came over. They had brought this game, Anka Anka Gra Anka, with them. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, and that it basically just stuck. There were uh, basically some people who, who had played this game. Others played it differently, and this is the one that just happened to come into Minnesota and stay here. So the idea is that some Swedish immigrants came over and were playing Anka Anka Gas, uh, which I may be mispronouncing, but that was Duck Duck Goose, and that here in Minnesota, our Swedish immigrants were playing Anka Anka Gra Anka Duck Duck Grey Duck. 
Exactly. Yeah. It just happened to work out that way. And the, the Swedes who settled in Minnesota happened to use gray duck instead of goose. But this is still very much a theory, it sounds like. Yeah. Chris called it a fun hypothesis. There's no really real way of nailing down if it's exactly true or not true, but it is something that is sort of fun to think about and could be the case. And so the other thing your story touched on is that, you know, given that this is an oral tradition, that may be why we don't know as much about its origins. You quoted an expert talking about it's actually remarkable how consistent it is in the rest of the country, given that it's an oral tradition, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if you think about a lot of children's games, the expert that I talked to was a University of Minnesota professor, and he gave the example of Mother May I, which some people say versus Captain May I. These games by nature have different variations to them, and there are wide variations to many children's games. And so it's sort of remarkable that Minnesota is, right, the only state that uses gray duck. That's remarkable, but it's, it's even more remarkable that sort of all 49 other states are so uniform in using goose, and we happen to be the only outlier. Right. And so I grew up in New York and we played Duck, Duck, Goose, but you grew up in Minnesota. So I, I assume you played Duck, Duck, Gray Duck? It's the only way to play it. Yes, is Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. It's the proper and right and best way to play it. <laughs> all right, great. Well, Austin, thanks for joining us today and we appreciate all this info. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric, for having me on. Our question asker, Lene Holt, offered another theory for the game's origin, which is that an earnest Minnesota teacher wanted to help kids learn colors and avoid having a child feel bad for being labeled a goose, hence the gray duck variation. If you have other questions for us here at Curious Minnesota, record them on the voice recorder app on your phone and send them to curious at startribune.com. We'd also love to hear your feedback about the show. Are there things you like or things you think we could improve? Drop us a line at curious at startribune.com. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious.